This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Every true crime story involves loss. If you have been a victim of crime, you will probably experience a sense of loss in your safety and security. You may lose trust in others, or even yourself, if you place some of the responsibility on your own decision-making. Being a victim of crime continues to reverberate even if the perpetrator is arrested, a trial held, and a verdict decided. The most significant and life-altering result of crime, of course, is the loss of life. When a murder occurs, family, friends, and loved ones of the victim or victims are left to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives and find some way, if possible, to go on. Losing someone to homicide is a trauma like no other. Some find it so difficult to function after such a loss that they seek ways to reconnect with their deceased loved ones. Some resort to psychic mediums in hopes of receiving a message from those they have lost. But what if the deceased person's spirit reached out to the living? And what if it did so in an attempt to identify the killer and solve a murder? After hearing this week's case, you may decide that that is exactly what happened after 20-year-old Ashley Howley went missing from Columbus, Ohio in 2004. Did the young woman return from beyond the veil to receive justice? You make the call. This is Chapter 3 of Psychic Detectives, The Murder of Ashley Howley. In the fall of 2005, Christy Robinette was asleep in her Livonia, Michigan home when she woke suddenly. She sat up and saw a presence at the foot of her bed. She immediately knew it wasn't a 3D person, but a spirit. Christy Robinette had seen and communicated with such apparitions since she was a toddler. The one who appeared to her that night was a young woman with blonde hair. Like other spirits she'd encountered, This girl had a gray tint to her skin and was partially translucent. To Christy, this indicated that this person was no longer living, but had yet to cross over into what most people call heaven. She was a spirit trapped between the worlds of the living and the dead, and she'd come to Christy for help. Since age three, Christy has communicated with dead people or what she prefers to call those on the other side. Almost without fail, these people, who I'll call spirits to keep it short, have sought her assistance. Christy says she is a psychic medium, a person who can see, hear, and communicate with the dead. These spirits recognize her as one who can commune with those in the spirit world. They come to her with a message to relay, or if they need help. The first spirit that appeared to Christy did so when she was just a toddler. Christy remembers this first visitation vividly. The woman gave her a message and told her to share it with her parents. Christy obeyed. She told her mother, Grandma is going to die. 
Christie's mother was upset with her for saying such a thing. Her grandmother was in perfect health. For passing on this first message from spirit, Christie received a spanking. But just a couple of weeks later, Christie's grandmother unexpectedly died. Even though her premonition was correct, Christie hoped she wouldn't receive any more visits from the dead if it meant that she'd get in trouble. She was raised in a religious Lutheran household and was told that saying she could see and hear spirits was wrong. Everything changed, however, when Christie was eight years old. That was when she escaped a would-be kidnapper with the assistance of her deceased grandfather. Not only did she realize that people on the other side could help the living, but her escape from a predator began her fascination with true crime. She had always been a voracious reader, and now she read everything about true crime she could get her hands on. Christy found herself most drawn to unsolved cases that she read about in true crime books. She wondered if she could connect with the spirits of the people who were either missing or had been murdered. She used her unique abilities to try and gain more insight. Quote, I began to train myself about those feelings, she explains. Do I feel like I'm drowning? Do I feel like I'm lost in the woods? Do I feel like I'm alive? End quote. As an adult, Christy finally embraced her gift and began working at a metaphysical shop. She sometimes gave psychic readings to customers, using her gifts to connect with her clients' loved ones who had crossed over. The shop where she worked was near a police department. Officers who knew of her abilities sometimes stopped by to see her during their lunch hours. They'd throw cases at me, she says. Sometimes they were cold cases they wanted to know if she had any hunches about. Other cases were solved. Those they shared with her either to test her psychic abilities or perhaps to confirm that the person who had been convicted had actually committed the crime. When the details Christie shared with investigators turned out to be correct, word spread. Other agencies contacted her for help. Most did not share with the public, or maybe even their superiors, that they were using a psychic medium to help them in their investigations. But without provocation, the spirit of this young woman had come to her. Christie could sense that the woman was desperate to communicate with her. She calmed herself and began tuning into the young woman's energy, but communication was difficult. Christie believed that this spirit had not been dead long. She says that the longer spirits were on the other side, the stronger their ability to speak becomes. This woman seemed agitated, gesturing to Christie and trying to say something she felt was essential to get across. Christie waited. Finally, the woman was able to form the words murdered and help. She felt sympathy for this restless spirit, but didn't know how she could help. She didn't even know who she was. Maybe that's where she could start, Christy thought. She began researching cases of murdered women on the internet. She didn't have much to go on, so she started in her local area. All she knew was that the woman was blonde and appeared to be in her early 20s. It took her a few attempts, but finally her research yielded a possible match. She saw a picture of a missing woman who closely resembled her ghostly visitor. The woman was 20 years old when she'd gone missing from Columbus, Ohio, a year earlier. Her name was Ashley Howley. Christy emailed the detective assigned to the missing woman's case. She began her message by stating, You're probably going to think I'm crazy, and explained how the missing woman had appeared to her, wanting her to know that she had been murdered. She gave the detective the woman's description 
and told him she believed she'd been talking to the spirit of Ashley Howley. She was surprised when the detective contacted her, but he simply took the information and said he'd add it to the file. That might have been the end of it, but if it was the spirit of Ashley Howley visiting the psychic, she was refusing to give up. The spirit visited Christy several more times. Christy came to understand that the woman wanted her family to know what had happened to her. She was murdered, she insisted, and her body had been buried. She wanted her body found. Christy decided to contact Crime Stoppers, a national organization that creates networks between law enforcement agencies and local programs in the United States to help solve crimes. The organization had been sharing information about Ashley Howley's disappearance in the news media. Christy called the hotline and reported what she'd learned. The person at Crime Stoppers who took her call was sympathetic, but said she didn't know what she could do. However, she gave her a phone number to connect her to Ashley Howley's family and said she might try contacting them directly. But all the articles and reports Christy Robinette had read about the case were about a missing woman. Christy wondered what kind of reaction she would get from the family when she told them that she believed Ashley had been murdered. Ashley Howley grew up in Livonia, Michigan, and moved to Columbus, Ohio to attend college. She was studying to become a social worker. Pretty, petite, and blonde, Ashley found herself looking for a way to pay her school and living expenses. She began dancing at a club in the evenings to make ends meet. Many men were attracted to the pretty exotic dancer, but one was persistent, and he and Ashley began dating. Robert McMichael, called Bobby, had a checkered past before he met Ashley. His run-ins with the law started when he was barely in his teens. At 15, McMichael was accused of stealing a gun and trying to rob someone with it. He put the man in a chokehold and held a gun to his head. He was caught and arrested. He was charged in juvenile court and pleaded guilty to delinquency and receiving stolen property. His violent nature would reveal itself again when he was 17. McMichael entered a man's apartment and stabbed him with a hunting knife. There is no record of what led up to this attack. He once again pled guilty, this time to charges of delinquency and felony assault, according to later trial records. Because he was charged in juvenile court, many details of his arrests and convictions are sealed from the public. Just a few months into their relationship, Bobby McMichael was charged with assaulting Ashley. He received probation in that incident. Ashley's friends knew that she had become afraid of McMichael and had ended the relationship, but he continued to stalk her. He started threatening her when begging her to take him back had no effect. On June 14, 2004, Ashley was at home in Columbus when she called 911. Hysterical, she told police that her ex-boyfriend, Bobby McMichael, had entered her apartment and assaulted her. She was bruised and her lip was bleeding. She shook with fear while detailing the attack to the officers. They took the report, but Bobby had already fled. Patrol officers were given McMichael's description, and she was advised to go somewhere safe until he was found. She said she would call a friend. Ashley made the next phone call to her best friend, Beverly. She cried and said that she was packing some things and would drive to her house as soon as possible. That was the last Beverly heard from her friend. Ashley never arrived. 
Ashley was in the habit of calling her family in Michigan regularly. When Father's Day passed and her father didn't receive a call from her, her family knew that something was wrong. After talking to her friends and co-workers in Ohio, they discovered that no one had heard from her in a few days. They called the police to report Ashley missing. However, they were told that Ashley would not be listed as a missing person just yet. She was an adult, they were told, and if she'd gone away for a few days without reporting it to her family, well, that wasn't a crime. But her family had learned from Ashley's friend about the 911 call just before she went missing. They urged the police to begin looking for her, but officers suggested that Ashley may have left town to get away from the problem, but they had no evidence to suggest anything more than that. Not willing to wait any longer, Ashley's family and friends began their own search. They blanketed the area with her picture on missing posters, called news outlets, and reported her to missing persons organizations like Crime Stoppers. Two weeks later, police began a missing persons investigation. Ashley's home was searched, and the evidence suggested that she had not left on an extended trip. All her personal items were still in her apartment, including her toiletries, her wallet, and her purse. Days passed and then weeks with no signs of Ashley Howley. Months later, her car was discovered in a parking lot miles away, but appeared to have been wiped clean. Everyone, of course, suspected her ex-boyfriend, Bobby McMichael, of being involved in her disappearance. Police interviewed him at his father's home where he was living. The house, located on the outskirts of town, surrounded by woods, was searched, as was the property, but nothing of significance was found. Later, authorities even employed cadaver dogs to search the land surrounding the property, but that search turned up empty as well. Ashley was last seen in June of 2004. The case went cold. In the fall of 2005, Christy Robinette contacted Ashley's parents to tell them that she'd been visited by who she believed was their murdered daughter. Christy Robinette relayed the information to Ashley Howley's family about the spirit of the murdered girl who'd visited her asking for help. Her mother, Jackie, wasn't ready to believe her daughter was dead, although she would later admit she suspected Ashley had been killed by her ex-boyfriend, Bobby. But Ashley's cousin, Carrie Combs, wanted to hear anything Christy could tell her about Ashley. She and Ashley had grown up together and had been as close as sisters. Carrie met with Christy and was impressed with the details about her cousin the psychic was able to provide. Christy accurately described the clothing Ashley was wearing when she went missing. She told Carrie that Ashley continued to appear to her and provided more details over several months. She said Ashley told her that she'd been murdered and her body had been buried. She described to the psychic the area where she'd been buried. She said there was a street close by that began with the letter O or an O sound. It was a long word. She also described that the place where her body was buried was surrounded by light-colored pine trees. There were railroad tracks nearby and water. She clarified that she was not in the water, but there was water around her. Christy and Carrie looked at a map of the Columbus, Ohio area. The first place they searched that seemed like it might be a match was Three Creeks Park. There was an old railroad junction alongside a street named Obetz. On November 12, 2005, they drove to the area to conduct a preliminary search. Christy and Carrie walked through Three Creeks Park, one of the metro parks belonging to the Central Ohio Park System. Christy said it didn't feel right, 
She didn't sense Ashley's presence there, although she did feel like there was, quote, a lot of very heavy energies around. All of a sudden, she gasped. In her mind's eye, she saw dozens of bodies hanging from trees in the woods. I don't like it here, she told Carrie. They turned to retrace their steps. They went to the ranger station to see if they can get more information to help them find the place they were looking for. They met park ranger Larry Peck. Christy asked him if anyone had hung themselves in the park. He said, unfortunately, it had happened several times during the park's history. It was such a well-known place for this that some locals had dubbed it Suicide Park. The women left the park disappointed. They hadn't seen anything resembling the place Ashley's spirit was trying to direct them to. But Ashley's spirit was getting stronger, and she wasn't about to give up yet. A year had passed since Christy and Ashley's cousin Carrie searched the area where they thought she might be buried. Ashley had now been missing for over two years. Christy Robinette continued to be visited by Ashley's spirit. She provided her with more clues to find her body. Christy felt a heaviness whenever Ashley appeared to her. She felt her spirit was very sad, but also angry. She'd been murdered and wanted her killer identified and caught. She was a bit vengeful, Christy recalled. Ashley would sometimes cry, Christy said. She'd weep and say, I just wanted to be loved. More images unfolded in Christy's mind's eye after these visitations. She saw an old broken fence and a very old cemetery nearby, and over and over, she saw many pine trees. But these were unusual pine trees. The trunks of the trees were light in color. And she heard Ashley clearly say concrete. She didn't know what that meant, but Christy added that to her list of clues. Carrie and Christy had taken Ranger Larry Peck's information. Now they called him with the additional descriptors. By this time, they'd confided in him that they were searching for clues into the disappearance of Ashley Howley. Peck was eager to help in any way he could. After hearing the details of what they were looking for, Peck's mood brightened. He believed he could tell them exactly where to look. The information about the old cemetery, the broken fence, and especially the light-colored pine trees made him almost certain they should search a different park in the Metro Park system, Highbanks Metro Park. There was an old cemetery in Highbanks Park, and train tracks there ran along Olentangy River Road. This was the long O name that had been an earlier clue provided by Ashley. Carrie and Christy drove to the park and met Larry Peck. They followed him on foot to the area he thought matched the description. As they walked, Christy looked around and saw rows of tall pine trees, all with light-colored bark on the trunks. They continued along and the ground grew soft. It was very wet, almost like a marsh. The ranger said this could be the water around the area described to Christy. Christy felt a tingle and believed Ashley's spirit was guiding them on this walk through the woods. She felt her presence strongly and knew they were on the right track. They came to a low fence that was falling apart in places. Christy felt guided to follow the fence line. As they did, they ended up at the edge of the woods. Several yards into a clearing was a house. Ranger Peck said they could go no further or they'd be entering private property. But he had a bombshell to reveal to the women. Pointing to the house in the distance, he said, Do you know whose house that is? They both shook their heads. That's where Bobby McMichael lived when Ashley went missing, he said. 
The house belonged to Robert McMichael Sr., Bobby's dad. Just yards from where they stood, Christy saw an area near the fence and close to a riverbank. That's where she's directing me, right there, Christy said, pointing to a place that was on McMichael's land. I'm sorry, ladies, Peck said sadly. We can't search there unless we have a judge's permission. It's up to the law now to investigate. They'd reached a dead end in their search. Literally. Ashley Howley's missing persons case had gone cold after two years. Her family and friends were convinced that her ex-boyfriend, Bobby McMichael, was responsible and had most likely killed her. But without evidence, there was nothing else the law could do. Still, McMichael continued to spin out, it seemed. Was it a guilty conscience causing him to behave erratically? Was it because he was overindulging in drugs and alcohol? Or was he also being visited by a vengeful spirit? We can only hope that this is true. In any case, McMichael was on the cops' radar continually. In December of 2006, he was charged with assaulting his mother. The charges were later dropped. In 2007, he was arrested twice for possession of hypodermic needles for cocaine or heroin use. He pled guilty to one charge, and the other was dismissed. In October of the same year, he was arrested for shoplifting over $500 worth of clothing items at a department store. He'd been living in his father's home at 8250 Olentangy River Road, but after police came by looking for his missing ex-girlfriend and conducted searches of the house and property, he moved out. He was living in a hotel in a nearby town. He periodically visited his mother, Barbara Rush, and her boyfriend, Greg Barty, at the home they shared in Minerva Park, northeast of Columbus. But the relationship with his mother seemed volatile, as I described earlier. Meanwhile, Ashley's family prayed for a break in the case that might lead them to discover what had happened to her. That break came just after Christmas 2007. A man renting a room from Barbara Rush broke open a locked bedroom door on December 28, 2007, after not hearing from his landlady or her boyfriend for several days. There, he found the bodies of 49-year-old Barbara and 43-year-old Greg Barty. Rush had been strangled and Barty had been beaten to death with a blunt object. Rush's son, 25-year-old Bobby McMichael, was suspected in the murders. On New Year's Day, he was pulled over by police, just north of Minerva Park, and arrested. He refused to speak to the police and immediately asked for an attorney. He would only say that he had spoken to his mother the previous Friday. Investigators knew this couldn't be true, as she had been dead for several days before the bodies were discovered. He was charged with aggravated murder and held on $500,000 bail. Long suspected of being involved in Ashley Howley's disappearance, Columbus Police Detective Russ Redman was quoted as saying after McMichael's arrest, he has always been the only suspect in Ashley's disappearance. Ashley's father, Mark Howley, was also interviewed about this development. What I know, and what everyone knows, is that he killed her. What we don't know is what he did with her body, Mark Howley said. That question would soon be answered. Garrett Kalish was a close friend of Bobby McMichael. He was also often in trouble with the law. At the time McMichael was arrested for the murder of his mother, Kalish was in jail after violating parole for armed robbery 
after being picked up on a shoplifting charge. After he heard that his friend was sitting in jail on a double murder charge, he contacted the police to share some information. He told detectives he had first-hand knowledge that Bobby McMichael had killed his ex-girlfriend, Ashley Howley. He knew this because he'd helped him bury her body, he confessed. Why was Kalish ready to talk and to implicate himself as an accessory to murder after the fact? It seems he knew his old pal Bobby well enough to know that he would do or say anything to save his own ass. Kalish knew that if the cops leaned on Bobby hard enough, he might implicate him in Ashley's murder. So he decided to sing first. In April 2008, nearly four years after her disappearance, Garrett Kalish directed investigators to the place where he and McMichael had buried Ashley's body. Her remains were found in the woods near McMichael's father's home. The body had been buried in a shallow grave and covered with quick-setting concrete. This may have prevented the cadaver dogs from picking up the scent during the initial search of the property. It may also have been the concrete Ashley's spirit had mentioned, according to Christy Robinette. Ashley's body was found just 100 yards from where Christy Robinette had been guided to look for her. Four days after the discovery of the remains, police confirmed they were those of Ashley Howley. Her body was too decomposed to determine a cause of death, but it's believed she was strangled or beaten to death. Garrett Kalish was released while awaiting trial. He was living at his parents' home when he was discovered dead on May 21st. It was determined that he'd died of an accidental drug overdose. On July 22, 2008, Robert McMichael pleaded guilty to three counts of murder to avoid a possible death sentence. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison for Ashley's murder. He was also sentenced to two additional terms of life in prison for the aggravated murder of his mother and Greg Barty. Sadly, Ashley's mother, Jackie Stanton, died in 2007 before her daughter's fate was known. Both she and Ashley were cremated and interred together in an above-ground crypt. Ashley's sister Krista said, We had Ashley cremated because we didn't want her buried again. We put mom there too. They are together, together at last. Robert McMichael never explained why. Why did he kill Ashley? He showed no emotion or remorse in court as he pled guilty to her murder. Her cousin Carrie says she thinks he did it out of jealousy. He was stalking Ashley for some time before he killed her. They were only together about six months before they split up. Carrie said that since that time, Bobby wouldn't leave her cousin alone. He came to her job, showed up at her house, and called and harassed her constantly. It was a classic senseless case of, if I can't have you, nobody will. Behind bars, Robert McMichael presents himself as a changed person. As this changed person, he is seeking out pen pals and says he can, quote, hopefully meet someone who can help me be a better person. Ugh. Here's the bio he has listed on a prison pen pal website. Quote, my name is Bobby, and here is a little about me. I'm six foot one, 200 pounds. I enjoy working out, running, playing sports, watching TV, shoes, reading, and talking politics. I'm doing a life sentence, but I've learned the value of life. I appreciate every day and try to make the most of it. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, graduated from Westerville South in 2000. 
I had plans on joining the army, but chose to get into trouble, which led me down the path to prison. I tried to help people and give them good advice now in hopes that maybe I could change at least one person's life for the better. I'm looking for a good friend, companion, and anything more if it leads to that. I'm a good listener, and I never judge anybody. I feel you should get to know a person for who they are, rather than what they are, or what they have done. I feel like I'm a changed person and have a lot to offer someone. End quote. His bio is accompanied by photos of him shirtless and posing with therapy dogs he works with in a prison program. Yikes. Let's hope no other woman falls for his oily charms. A very scary person indeed. Christy Robinette still works as a psychic medium and is the author of several spiritual books. Calling herself a light worker and intuitive healer, she says this about her life's work. Quote, it's now been almost 20 years when I opened my office, and since then I have connected tens of thousands of those who've lost loved ones and assisted wonderful people in getting their life back on track. With the use of guides, angels, and loved ones on the other side, along with my gifts of clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, and empathy, I am here to help. End quote. If you want to book an appointment with her, you must be patient. Her website states her readings are fully booked 8 to 12 months out. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What do you think? Are messages from beyond the grave real? Did Ashley Howley help to solve her own murder? Tell us what you think about this episode or any other by connecting with us on social media. Check out our website, truecrimepodcast.com, for links to all of our channels. Next month, I'll be doing a true crime wrap-up for 2023, and I want to include you in December's episodes. Go to our website and click on the red microphone on the homepage to send me a recording telling me what true crime cases kept you up at night in 2023. What case most intrigued you? Which true crime shows or documentaries were you obsessed with? Tell us, and you might hear your voice on Once Upon a Crime next month. Once Upon a Crime was written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.